everyone. This is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Daenerys. And I'm Adi. And today we're sitting down with Martha Minow. Professor Minow has been has taught at Harvard since 1981. She, there, she is the 300th anniversary university professor and former dean of Harvard Law School. She is an advisor to nonprofit organizations and governments around the world and a prolific author. Her most recently published books are Saving the News, Why the Constitution Calls for Government Action to Preserve the Freedom of Speech, and When Should Law Forgive. She's one of the Athenaeum's 75th anniversary speakers and is with us today to speak on the theme of unity and division. Thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. So you've done some really amazing things in your life. I saw in your bio that you've, for example, been on the International um, Commission around Kosovo. And I'm actually really interested to hear about what inspired your choice to go to law school and afterwards your choice of fields of study and work. Thanks. Well, I really reflect the era in which I grew up. I grew up in the 1960s. I was involved as a very young child because of my parents in civil rights activities, in anti-war activities, the women's movement, the environmental movement. uh, And uh, I really didn't plan to go to law school. I planned to work on school reform and urban policy, went to graduate school in those fields, and found that the lawyers were calling the shots. And so I really went to law school out of self-defense. Uh, And I've had incredibly uh, a lucky career because I never planned to be a professor, but um, uh, there was an election of a president who was not the one I wanted to work for when I had a job in the Department of Justice. So I went to the uh, university and very quickly found that I could have one foot in practice and one foot in theory uh, and pursued my interests in education and equity and also over time, became much more internationally focused. Right. And I think one of your big themes from last night at your talk at the Ath was this idea of forgiveness from the law. And so I think what I have questions about is how does bias affect who receives forgiveness from the law? Is there some sort of racial element and that kind of makes forgiveness a privilege for some people and not accessible to others? That really was the question that drove my book. Uh, So I wanted to explore whether in this age of mass incarceration, uh, we could use the tools that are already existing in the American legal system, which are many, uh, to uh, mitigate or even bypass the, uh, the criminal justice, criminal law system. Uh, and But my concern was exactly that. As much as there's bias in the system as it currently operates, there could be even more bias. If uh, police and prosecutors and judges are empowered even more than they already are. Um, and so my, my book really was trying to explore uh, what are the elements of forgiveness, when is it warranted, and how to guard against uh, bias. I don't have the answers, but I raise the questions. In terms of bias, can you talk a little bit about how technology has sort of changed the landscape of how bias can feed into some of the decision making that uh, lawyers and judges can sort of make? Such a good question. I've been teaching for the last three years, of course, on fairness and privacy in the algorithmic age, because I do think this is the new frontier of the civil rights movement. Uh, All of our lives are touched now, if not controlled, much more than we realize by algorithms and other kinds of uh, artificial intelligence. 
there is the use of uh, machine learning to decide who gets credit, uh, who gets what kind of student loan, uh, who gets admitted to schools, uh, whose child is taken away, who is uh, given bail, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And it's not transparent, it's not obvious. And most of these devices use the technology of machine learning, which itself simply takes data to teach an algorithm about pattern recognition. If the data that are selected are themselves biased, which almost all of them are, the algorithm learns to perfect the bias. Uh, and that is a very serious problem. Moreover, if the, if the criteria that are used, for example, asking uh, what is the likelihood that someone will show up uh, to trial, if the criteria used reflect inattention to the differences in people's lives, like likelihood of showing up to the hearing may be affected by whether or not the person has transportation or childcare issues or can't leave their job, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, those are the kinds of questions that this class uh, examines, and I really think that one of the major issues now is the two cultures, the people who are designing the algorithms, speak a language that many others have no clue about what the questions are. A further problem is the incentives of the private industries that are building these machines. We probably know the most about that right now, about social media. But the algorithms that I've been describing are mostly proprietary, mostly created by private companies. And uh, when, when challenged, for example, in the Supreme Court of Wisconsin, um, a proprietary algorithm that was completely inaccessible to outside reviewers, uh, the court said, well, we, we just look at the outcome and we're not going to demand any kind of transparency. I think that's a real problem. I think that's a an end run around the accountability mechanisms of the rule of law. So I think that anyone who's interested in civil rights or uh, equity or equality issues right now should really get involved in being at least uh, conversant enough uh, to participate in uh, challenges and redesign of the algorithms that are ruling our lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this discussion about algorithms and technology really reminds me about these um, recent allegations made by the whistleblower Francis mm -hmm. Hagen against Facebook in terms of how they've been spreading misinformation and really um, enabling a radicalization. And I'm wondering how these recent allegations um, interact with your findings from your most recent book, which is, I, I think, called Saving the Media. It's saving the news, absolutely. And I, I confess, I've been you know, watching, of course, uh, whistleblower's testimony and some others have come forward uh, as well uh, with great interest and gratitude, but frankly, no surprise. There is nothing that I've heard that I didn't already know. So if you watch this space, you would not be surprised to know that the uh, Facebook in particular, but all the big social media companies uh, use algorithms to reward engagement and hire cognitive psychologists and behavioral psychologists to nudge people, to really form a kind of addiction and to actually polarize because engagement is uh, activated more by uh, hot emotions than by reason. And that's what the algorithms reward because after all, it's eyeballs uh, that uh, fuel the finances here. 
Um, at first, I thought that Facebook was mostly selling the data to others. Mostly, no, they are selling ads. And uh, they're using uh, the information to create this micro-targeted ads, which are the relationship then to my book is that one of the major reasons why the conventional news media is collapsing is the migration of the ad revenues from uh, the media companies to these social media companies that until recently denied that they were in the media business, denied that they were doing anything editorial. Um, but they don't reinvest in reporters, in investigations. They take what others have developed. They don't pay copyright. Um, and that's where the ads are. And uh, that's a, a, one of the major reasons for the collapse. You know, half the newspapers uh, in the country have, have folded in the last uh, period of time. We have a major loss of the numbers of people who make a living in journalism. Um, and democracy was really founded on the idea that we could have an informed citizenry and hold the uh, holders of power accountable uh, through self-government, but also through the exposés of the media. And if we don't have the media, it's already been shown very effectively. Cities and towns that lose uh, news and, and news uh, entities actually have higher levels of graft and corruption lower levels of civic engagement. Um, and that's bad for everybody. Now, you mentioned in the book that we need to stop treating these companies as sort of fledgling startups and treat them like the payments that they are. Um, obviously, the news came out this week that Facebook is changing its name from the Facebook company to Meta. I'm curious to get your thoughts on that and sort of this sort of pivot when they're coming under so much fire and what that might mean for the future of the company and potential breakups. You know, I can't uh, deny that my first reaction was this was an effort to have a brand do-over <laughs> at a moment that there's a lot of uh, criticism of the company. But my understanding is that this was something that was planned for some time and reflects, if anything, a recognition that people of your generation are not interested in Facebook. Uh, and so they have a business model, uh, declining revenues. You know, they did buy Instagram, but um, their, their bet now is to move into virtual reality and augmented reality. And that's where they thought Facebook as a name doesn't uh, signal that anymore. Um, you know, the, <laughs> the tobacco companies also tried to change their names, but we know who they are. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm... You know, this discussion of social media, I remember last night you talked a little bit about the role of radio in the Rwandan genocide. Mm -hmm. And I would really like to hear your thoughts about how social media has impacted the way that genocide is carried out or maybe that the way people have responded to genocides. Yes, it's such a sober uh, subject. Uh, and, and it's wrong to imagine that there's something unique about the ability of social media to inflame and polarize and mobilize because, as you say, uh, in Rwanda, long before social media, it was radio. Uh, World War II, uh, Nazi Germany, um, it was radio and, and even lower tech speeches in public. But film, film was recruited by the Nazis also. So the very ways in which mass communication are effective uh, for education, for motivation, 
can be used for good or for ill. The particular problem I'm seeing now with social media is that this polarizing tendency um, is uh, being taken advantage of by unscrupulous leaders in countries and countries that don't have a First Amendment where the government then can take over um, and, and even uh, limit any kind of competition. Um, and there is a major, major problem. We have seen, you know, at least correlations between some Facebook postings and terrible violence in India uh, and also in Myanmar. And so there are, I think there's blood on people's hands, um, but uh, it's not unique to social media. Other media have had similar uses. You know, media itself is, is largely a neutral tool but what makes social media somewhat different is that because it has smart algorithms embedded in it, it does tilt. So at least in the United States, I think the January 6th uh, riots was a good example of sort of the disintegration of some of the norms and procedure that we've seen. Um, aside from the Facebook component, what other things do we need to be doing to restore faith in the American system? the norms that we have had for so long and the general rule of law? That's a big one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we can also, though, just be clear that it wasn't just conventional social media that was sure. used to mobilize uh, people uh, to engage in an insurrection against the Capitol. Uh, that was part of a much bigger, big lie, uh, claiming that the election was stolen. And that was conveyed by elected officials. Um, and by uh, broadcast and cable, uh, probably even more than social media. Though uh, my understanding is that uh, it's l some of the lesser known social media sites that were really used by the people mm -hmm. who mobilized people to actually come to the Capitol. Um, I think that the uh, decline in trust um, reflects both re real reasons for people to have distrust, but also um, the, the polarization that's fueled by uh, these tactics of the media. Um, I remember there was a time early in Trump's uh, presidency when a uh, CEO of a major media company said, he's terrible for the country, but he's great for us. Um, there's a kind of rubbernecking quality uh, that people became so absorbed in a kind of hateful rhetoric and like what's going to happen next. Um, and unfortunately, this is a playbook that's very familiar that uh, create enemies um, and attack any source of criticism of the person who is seeking power, whether it is the media or it is academics or it is scientists or anybody, anybody's an enemy. And it's very hard to rebuild trust after people have uh, actually um, been following that kind of a narrative. Do you think then that law has a role in maybe rebuilding this trust and reducing polarization? And maybe do you think this idea of forgiveness can in any way, um, you know, bring us together or unite us after this has happened? Well, I think for many people, law itself is one of the sources of distrust. Uh, certainly people who are not happy with the practices of the criminal law, uh, but there are people also not happy with many other areas of the law. Um, so I don't think law itself is going to be a resource uh, for rebuilding trust. It's a tool. 
It's a tool for people uh, who are trying to uh, bring about greater inclusion, greater um, freedoms, greater uh, you know aspirations to take us back to our our founding and and the best possibilities for this country. I'm right now involved in a lawsuit. It's pending in the First Circuit Court of Appeals in in, uh, in Boston, dealing with a right to education, a right to civic education. Um, if you just look at the quality of schools, kids aren't even learning about how do you engage in self-government. Two-thirds of Americans can't name the three branches of government. Uh, many, many people uh, just didn't understand how elections work. Um, so I don't know what's going to happen with this lawsuit, but one of the reasons to do a lawsuit like this is to bring awareness. Whatever happens in the lawsuit, we have people talking about it. Um, and it can also be a source of mobilization for political action. I do think that forgiveness, in the way that I think about it, uh, letting go of justified grievances, is a resource that each of us have in our own lives. But I also think that it is a resource that institutions can use. You know, I'm very fascinated that libraries all over the country are waiving fines for overdue books. They're amnesties. And they're doing it for multiple reasons. The most important one is that it turns out um, people are more likely to return the books when they don't have a fine. Uh, that's a very good insight about human nature. But also it's realizing they didn't want to be associated with this kind of negative attitude. They want to be a place that's welcoming and invites people. I think that's an insight about an institutional use of forgiveness. I wanted to go back to the idea of education that you touched on in that last uh, discussion. Um, as an educator yourself, uh, we touched a little bit on sort of how algorithms and technological bias is important for the legal profession to learn right now. What other things do you think is missing in higher education or maybe legal education specifically? I do think that because uh, so many people are spending so many hours on screens, um, we should be doing something in education, and I would say this is from kindergarten on up, that counteracts it um, in at least two ways. One is develop a kind of media literacy so people understand what goes into the creation. You, you're experts. You're making a podcast, but a lot of people have no clue. They don't know. Um, and the most effective forms of media education studies show is after uh, young people have a chance to make their own uh, documentary and see the editorial choices and then become more critical receivers of what others have produced. But the other uh, way in which education, I think, needs to adapt to our screen addictions is to cultivate the interpersonal. I think we should have much more time spent on learning how to negotiate, learning how to manage your emotions, learning how to apologize, uh, understanding how you're received by other people. Um, the disinhibition effect that we are all now living, that you send a message and you don't know how it's received, I think it's actually impairing the development of, of qualities of human compassion and interaction. It's taken centuries to develop. Um, and I think the schools have an obligation. I think one of the most kind of essential um, interactions that we can have are asking questions. And, you know, we're definitely in the business of asking questions here at the podcast. So we definitely wanted to ask a lawyer, what makes an excellent question? 
I actually gave a lecture uh, to a graduating class. Uh, our school has a custom of asking some faculty to give a last lecture. And the topic I picked was the importance of act, asking good questions. So I, I welcome this question. <laughs> uh, I, I do think that, you know, good questions really come from thought and from considering uh, what are answerable questions and also what's a, a reason to ask even an unanswerable question. Um, I think that a good question um, often takes the form of how rather than why. Uh, a good question also, um, you know, really the advice that lawyers have in the courtroom is never ask a question to which you don't already know the answer. I think outside the courtroom, it's the opposite. You want to ask questions where you don't know the answer and see where it goes. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Professor Minow, for giving us some of your time. We really appreciate it. And this has been a fantastic discussion. Um, and to all our listeners, stay hungry. Enjoyed it. Thanks very much.